Here we go, here we go. Welcome to Police Pod Talk. Whoop, whoop, it's the police. Don't look in your rearview mirror. This podcast covers the latest police news along with hitting the hot topics you've been talking about all week. I'm your host, Cleveland. Thank you for joining us. Hey folks, welcome back to Police Pod Talk. We're back at it again this week and I have a special guest with me today by the name of Amy Davis. Amy, you can say hello to the people out there. Hello everyone. All righty. Amy's, Amy's going to be with us here today. She's going to talk about an unsolved homicide uh, that took place and the victim was a Spencer Smith and Spencer happens to be your nephew, right? Yes. All right. Amy, and I'm going to let you tell the story about what happened to Spencer and then we'll get into a few questions that maybe the listeners might be asking, but you go ahead and explain what happened. Okay. So um, Spencer is my nephew, my oldest nephew, um, and he had recently uh, moved back to Fort Wayne in May of 2017. Uh, He was staying with his grandma. Spencer was a loving and kind person, a good friend to people. Um, And so he had a friend that was in need, wanted him to babysit while she went to work. She had a toddler. And um, so he went over to her apartment at East Central Towers, and uh, he was babysitting, um, stayed past his shift, and uh, hung out. And then when he was leaving the building, he was approached, and that's when he was gunned down. And that was August 19th of 2017. So it was uh, like overnight from Friday into Saturday. We didn't learn about it until Monday, the 21st. That was a regular day for me. I had gone to work, um, come home on my lunch break, uh, noticed that I had several missed calls and text messages. Uh, When I started checking into it, it was Spencer's grandma asking me to call her right away. Okay. I got to back you up to, you said that he was gunned down. What? Mm-hmm. Give me the details of what happened. You said he was babysitting, he went to leave. Mm-hmm. Paint, that, paint that picture for our listeners. Yeah, so sometime around 1 in the morning, he decided to that he was going to go home. And Spencer was, um, he didn't have a car at the time, so it was common for him to walk places. And he was going to walk from East Central Towers to Waynedale where he was living with his grandma. And detectives told us that he was approached by two gentlemen. They eventually shot him. He was he was seen on camera and then went off camera and came back on camera. And, um, and he was shot by two gentlemen, and he collapsed right there um, near a patio at East Central Towers. Okay, when you say he was on camera, off camera, did the mm-hmm. cameras catch him leaving the building? Was he out in the parking lot? Where was he standing? Yeah, so the um, the building's uh, like an L shape, and so when you when you come out the door, you can walk in the um, sidewalk out to Washington Boulevard, and so that's where he apparently went, and the cameras don't go that far, but then he came back on camera. Was there any sound to the cameras? I don't believe so. Um, I didn't get that level of detail from the detective since I'm just his aunt, but um, I know my uh, sister, she's probably got more information about that that she can share on her podcast. Okay. Now, we're going to be talking to your sister later, Mm -hmm. but your sister was not in town uh, during this. Um, Not at the time, but she got here fairly quick. So uh, Spencer's, both his parents lived out of town. His dad lived in Utah, and my sister was living in... um, uh, El Paso, Texas. Okay. And so they both had to come from out of town. And then 
um, we did meet with the detectives. Um, they, the detective contacted Spencer's dad and asked if we could, if he could come over to their house. And, um, and I was there, and he didn't give a lot of details. He just said, you know, we suspect uh, robbery is the motive, and um, we're going to investigate further. He gave us a business card. And I remember his dad saying, like, you know, did it look like he, you know, fought back or, you know, had a struggle with anybody or anything like that? And the detective said that he really didn't have those details at that time, but he would be happy to meet with Ron and Angie at a later time and talk to them. Now, you said it was Spencer's grandmother that contacted you. Yes, because uh, so Spencer lived with her, and she, she didn't live too far from me. And I don't know if you know much about Waynedale, but there's like a neighborhood, a lake, and then another neighborhood. She was on one side. I was on the other side. Um, so it was about a two-minute drive. Did they say the time frame when he walked outside to where he was walked away from the cameras? How long after that was the shooting? Um, I don't know that information. I don't think it was very long at all. So there's just two random guys standing there talking to him, and then all of a sudden they all walked off together. Yeah, I think um, maybe, um, I don't know if they lived there or they were there visiting or whatever, but they had come from inside the building as well. At some point, they came outside, and Spencer was out there smoking a cigarette, getting ready to walk home. He was, Spencer was 20, 20 years old. He carried a backpack everywhere he went. I don't know if they wanted what was in his backpack or, you know, whatever. But he, you know, he blended in with the college students that were moving back in. Um, he was walking, you know, so. And it, like I said, this was not uncommon for Spencer to walk wherever he went. It's not not uncommon for him to go home late at night, um, sometimes even stay the night at friend's house on the weekends. Um, he did have a job that he went to, but he didn't have to go to work until Sunday night. His grandma would take him to his boss's house and drop him off so that he could ride to work with his boss because he didn't have a car. And so that's what that's how she knew there was a problem because he didn't come home Sunday night to go to work. And so she was concerned on Sunday. And then she started, you know, texting and calling people like, you know, have you heard from Spencer? He didn't come home yet. And then his um, Spencer's dad, even though he wasn't living in Fort Wayne, a guy that went to high school with us, all of us went to school together. Um, his family is friends with Ron's family. And uh, so his mom reached out to him because he works for the sheriff department. And she said, you know, I'm really worried about Spencer. He didn't come home. Can you check around? So he said, yeah, let me do some checking. I'll get back with you. So he had, you know, checked hospitals, the jail. And eventually he went down to the coroner's office, talked to him and told him, that he was looking for a young 20-year-old. During this whole time they're looking, no one has a clue where he's at. Grandma mm -hmm. didn't know where he was at. He didn't show up. He didn't get ready for work. He's just missing at that point. Mm -hmm. No one had a clue that this kid that may have been shot at the high, at the apartments, the towers, was a Spencer Right. you were looking for. Did they say, hey, we want to put a missing out for him? Um, or was everyone just looking amongst friends? Um, at that point, they were just looking amongst friends because, like I said, sometimes Spencer would just stay the night at a friend's house or, you know, hang out longer than expected. But it was not like him to skip work. Mm -hmm. um, so when when he didn't come for work, that was the biggest indicator. So by him being gone Friday and Saturday, right. that was not abnormal. And his grandma was not concerned at that point. Mm -hmm. It was when he didn't come home on Sunday to go to right. work. That's when she got concerned, started doing checking, you know, and, and Sunday night, it's hard to check with people that late at night, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, and so, you know, she she checked in the morning, and that's when 
the officer got back with her and said that he had located Spencer. And honestly, I mean, to hear the words that Spencer's been shot, I mean, that was just, I never thought I would hear that. I mean, this this kid, uh, he didn't cause problems with people. Um, so I never thought that's how he would die. You know, he, <laughs> shortly before this happened, he had bought a motorcycle. Mm-hmm. I kept thinking every time I would hear a motorcycle, oh my gosh, Spencer, he's he's going to crash on this bike. And he did crash. And honestly, I mean, I'm surprised he wasn't taken out by the bike. But to hear that he had been shot just, I mean, it was just shocking for our whole family. And we never paid attention to crime before this because we thought, you know, we're not, we're not criminals. We're not involved in crime. You know, it's not going to impact our family. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I even heard the news that weekend that there was a shooting, at the towers, I never thought possibly that it would be anybody in my family. He never complained about having troubles there. Mm-mm. He never had an enemy there, never said there was an issue. Even walking home, I mean, from the towers all the way back to Wayne, that's a long walk if he's done that several times. Right. Never complained about running into anyone, being harassed. No. Just out of the blue, he runs into a couple of people, and right. then this happens. Right. What more did you find out as this investigation started to unfold? Um, well, the detectives, like I said, they, you know, did mention that they had a couple of people of interest. They did, um, you know, Spencer was, um, the third homicide that happened in three months at the towers. Um, and he was, um, the 22nd homicide of 2017 and he was killed exactly three months after Terrence Miles. Um, and he was killed exactly two weeks after Eddie Campbell. So when the police, you know, it was a violent year, and especially at the towers, there was a lot of crime going on. Uh, they did mention that it was possibly related to another case that they were investigating, and that was back when um, Steve Godfrey was uh, still working in the prosecutor's office, and uh, he did approach me. I was at a, a church. We were having a sort of like a meeting where the community would come together and talk about the crime. Stephen Godfrey was there, and he approached my dad and I, and he showed us a picture, and he said, did you see this news story? We're, you know, looking for this person in connection to two cases. And I said, is that about Spencer's case? And he said, I can't really divulge that information, but I just want to make sure you saw the story. Um, so I felt like, you know, there's it's like an underlying message that he can't really say, but I figured he was trying to tell me something. And so I, I think at that point I was still just really upset that there were, you know, hadn't been a, any closure in Spencer's case that I said, if you can't tell me the details, I don't want to talk to you about it. You know, so anyways, I've looked on my case in different places to find out more information about that individual. So since that time, and this this is 2017, mm-hmm. and we're talking 2023, mm-hmm. have you guys, a family, uh, mom, dad, been getting any updates on what may be going on? Um, so that, you know, it was complicated because... They his parents didn't live here, um, and so the police aren't just going to give information to everybody and anybody. But right. there was one one time that they did arrange a meeting where um, his grandma and um, a cousin, my dad and I, went in person and met with the detectives. My sister was on the phone, conferenced in, and we did have a meeting. Um, there was nothing came of that meeting. We just you know our frustrations. His grandma offered up a to put up a reward. And she was told that doesn't normally bring people forward. Um, I think we were at a time where, you know, it was, there was like a stigma, you know, uh, snitches get stitches, don't talk about anything kind of, you know, deal. Not sure that we um, really have a uh, witness protection program here in Fort Wayne, you know, so there were a lot of things that were complicating it. And his friend that he was babysitting for, 
she was still living there. So we didn't want to do anything that would make her unsafe, you know, but we wanted more information about the case. And so at first we probed and probed and probed, like, give us all the information you have. And we had, you know, uh, just a couple meetings. Nothing really ever came of it. And I mean, and I've chalked several times and rallies and my dad, you know, stand on the corner in the Clinton Street on the coldest day of the year, uh, holding a sign that he wants justice for his grandson. I mean, just to get attention to people mm-hmm. um, and and kind of bring awareness that, you know, do you even know how many people are getting killed in Fort Wayne, Indiana in 2017? I mean, it was a bit, you know, 2016 and I think was like the busiest year, the, the most killings, but 2017 wasn't too far behind it. Going back to the incident there at the towers, did Spencer lose property? Did they steal things from him? Shoes, hat, coat? What happened? Yeah, so um, they said that um, he his phone was gone, his backpack. We asked about all of his stuff, you know, um, and we didn't. They didn't um, have any of that. And uh, in fact, the detective said. Um, you know, normally cell phones are found in the bottom of the river, so there's not much we can do there. I did ask about, you know, can't you look more for his backpack? Can't you, um, you know, subpoena phone records for his social media? Um, and they said, no, you know, we, we haven't located the backpack. You know, we'll keep looking. Um, as far as social media, we were told, you know, that's owned by people outside the country. It's not easy to get the records. I think today they have a lot more technology, um, a lot more um, tools that they can use because they're really – a lot of cases that I've seen recently have been solved hinged on those kind of details. So I know that they did get, um, I think there was a grant that allowed them to get a digital forensics lab, DFL, and they're able to do a lot more today than what they could do back then. So have they used his phone? Oh, yeah. Um, so early on in the investigation, um, you know, my sister and I, we, we couldn't sleep. We were just all in about, you know, every possible thing we could find on Facebook, following his page, you know, and everything. And um, she had sent an, an invitation on Snapchat, like a friend request or something. Like 26 hours later, somebody accepted it or read it or looked at it or something. I'm, I'm not a social media mm-hmm. guru, so I don't know. But, I mean, it had been something there. Somebody had, had uh, reviewed it or something. So, and I know they took over his Facebook page and they renamed that. And then, um, you know, I mean, just today, like, there's a group that my sister started on Facebook, like a page remembering Spencer. And so we can post on there. Our family can post on there. But we don't, um, his old page, we don't post on that. We don't use that. Well, let me make sure our listeners understand. Someone actually used his phone started their own page with his name? Um, no, they uh, like renamed his page. So okay. he, he had a Spencer Smith page, and they renamed it. So with this new technology today, they haven't gone after that? I don't believe so. If they have, they haven't told me that. Okay, that's true, so. because you're, you're the aunt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mom yeah. lives out of town. Yeah. So only things you know is what you're being told, right? Yeah, yep. okay. exactly. All right, no witnesses, no other cameras in the area saw anything. No, um, I had suggested the um, detectives to go to Indiana Tech to get um, surveillance footage down there because, you know, the law school wasn't, uh, it was brand new, but it wasn't active anymore. It just didn't take off, but they were still using that building. They still had cameras there. They didn't send anybody down there, never retrieved anything from them. I mean, if they went to other places, because I drove around there and we went back there several times to have vigils, um, and I just kind of took note of the different places that you know, there's like a house across the street that has a sign in the yard saying they have surveillance um, or security system. And there's, um, you know, there's a flower shop. There's a there's a lot of businesses along the way. 
there, um, I think there's a funeral home. Yeah, there's a funeral down. home. Right. Um, down about like a block or two, there's a gas station. There's, you know, there's a lot of a lot of stuff. It's going like towards downtown. So there's a lot of stuff. So I don't know how much footage they've captured from anybody down there, if any. Right. And, and honestly, I don't know how far down the street Spencer was able to walk before right. he came back on camera at the towers. You know, he didn't go far. You know, because he, you know, he left the towers and came right back. So as they were chasing him. So there's footage of him coming back to the towers after the shooting. Well, as he was getting shot, he was came back onto the camera. You know, as far what from what I understand, mm-hmm. he was. They were chasing him, and he they chased him back onto the property. Okay. So, but I don't know as far as like the side of the building where they shot him. I don't know if he was if the shooting was on camera, but I know at least part of people chasing him was on camera. Now, here's one of these you may or may not know, and I think someone's listening. Uh, was Spencer involved with selling drugs or carrying a gun and doing anything like that? Um, he definitely didn't own a gun. And as far as the drugs go, I mean, I know he smoked weed a couple times, but I don't know, like as far as selling drugs, we've never known him to do that. Mm-hmm. So I don't believe so. And the police did not indicate that that was and you know had anything to do with it like that drugs were involved they did not say that right so i don't believe so um i know um as far as the gun he he did not own a gun but he owned a knife that he carried in his sock um and it wasn't there when the police found his body so i don't know if he took it out if they took it out i don't know what happened with that or if he even had it with him yeah i mean he always carried that was like a thing it was like you know like putting on your clothes i mean he just always put that Okay. You know, pocket knife or whatever on his sock. I don't even know if it's called a pocket knife, but yeah. <laughs> okay, it could be a sock knife. <laughs> yeah, who <laughs> knows? Whatever, wherever you carry it, it's that type of knife. Right. So your sister has never said to you, hey, here's a new update since 2017. Um, well, actually, this, this week, she... Um, She's been talking with the police again. I don't know what information they've given her, but I feel like um, that she, you know, she told me that she was going to reach out and talk to the detectives and try to get an update. So she may have gotten something, but I don't know. I mean, in, for for at least four years, we've had a window of like four years of not hearing anything. And then I know also recently his dad did get a copy of the autopsy report. And I'm, I don't even know that it was complete because I feel like he, they expected more information to be in there that wasn't. Um, I haven't seen it. I don't have a copy of it. But uh, I feel that was in July, I think, that his dad was here visiting and he reached out to me and asked, like, how can I get this? And I told him who to call. So you're given what you know from the what happened, but your sister, who we're going to talk to, um, by phone on another podcast can fill in a whole lot of the blanks, right? Probably, yeah. She's um, so I I mean she's moved a lot too because I mean you know she's her husband's military so they've moved so she's not even in El Paso anymore. She now she's in Virginia, um, and so I think with like moving and she's got other kids and stuff like that, you know, she doesn't come back to Fort Wayne a whole lot. But I think that you know the detective she's at least made contact with him and she's going to maybe start calling regularly or you know trying to get that dialogue going again so that she can get updates and stuff, you know. And then as far as, you know, me being his aunt, I mean, I'm just going to continue to, you know, if I chalk, rally, whatever, you know, every time we have an event with Java, I, you know, make a ribbon for him or, you know, mention that his case is unsolved still and things like that because I want to keep, one, I want to keep his memory alive and two, because I want people to know this is still an unsolved homicide. There might be somebody out there that has... Um, information and they don't realize that it's unsolved. So I want them to hear his name and know that we still need tips. From this, 
it started something else in your life, didn't it? Mm-hmm. Let, let's talk about that. When, um, when Spencer was killed, it was, you know, first of all, the biggest tragedy our family's ever had. Um, but second of all, it happened at a time when, like I said, we're not, we're not criminals, so we're not real familiar with the judicial system and how all the legalities work and everything. So it was, it was a tough year. We didn't feel like we had a lot of support. We didn't know what to do. We were lost. We were, you know, how did this happen to our family? What should we do? Um, and like I said, you know, spread out, you know, Angie in Texas and Ron in Utah and me here. And, you know, you can't just talk to any random person. You can't, I, I, I could call my best friend, but she never had anybody in her family murdered. She doesn't know what I'm going through. She can listen all day long, but sooner or later, she's going to get tired of hearing it because it's not something that's happened to her family. Eventually, my sister was contacted by another family that had a loved one that was gunned down. And my sister said, yeah, I'm in Texas. You know, here's my sister's phone number. You can call her and talk to her about it. I, you know, so, um, so we got to talk and, and there was a, the new Sentinel was still around back then. And a gentleman was, he wanted to do a story. And so he had invited a few families, grieving families down there to talk about what was going on. And um, so we kind of bonded, and that's when, you know, we thought, well, there's, you know, there's got to be power in numbers, and we can be louder if we have more voices and stuff. So at first, we were just a Facebook group, and that was in 2018. We started the Facebook group for Java, and then um, in 2019, we incorporated as a nonprofit, and we expanded our mission over the years. Um, At first, we were just solely focused on homicide. And eventually we got into missing persons, fentanyl poisoning, um, because, I mean, when you think about it, a missing person, I mean, Spencer was missing at first. We just didn't file the missing persons report yet because we didn't, you know, we were still thinking we could find them ourselves. And then, um, and a lot of missing persons don't come home. I mean, some of them are murdered, some of them are lost. Sometimes you hear, you know, those success stories where they're found, you know, 30 years later, but it's still, you know, possible crime and injustice. And so... Um, we started helping with that, and then we the fentanyl poisoning was all very new to us um, just in the last couple of years. We didn't even realize this was a thing until it happened to one of our own. So, um, yeah, so it started Java. No, wait, wait. You said who started Java? Uh, Stacy and I started, okay. Stacy Davis and I, and we got the same last name, but we're not related. <laughs> <laughs> and then we, um, we looped in a couple other people, too, that were there early on you know, formed like a little kind of leadership, you know, let's get these activities going, let's figure out how we can support people, how they can support us, you know, when you help people, that's very healing for your own soul, you know, and so just bonding together and talking to people that, you know, are grieving and have an injustice like you, it's, it's very um, healing and comforting to know that there's somebody that can understand. So when you say we started Java, how many people were involved? Just two of you to begin with? Well, uh, Stacy and I were the ones that got the paperwork going, but there was, like I said, it was a group of bereaved families that were meeting. You know, we would meet at the church or, you know, Stacy and I had a lot of meetings at Starbucks and different things like that, but, um, or just, you know, at home sometimes just to kind of figure out, you know, the logistics of it. How's this going to work? 
um, we were very fortunate because the United Methodist Church just wrapped their arms around us and embraced us and said, you know, we'll open up our space. You guys can meet here. Uh, we had a lot of public meetings. We invited the police department and the prosecutors to come and talk to people. We taught ourselves a lot of, you know, what's what's our rights as, you know, survivors of a crime victim? You know, what rights do we have? What should be happening? What's the norm? Because, I mean, you can watch, you know, CSI or something like that, but things don't play out like they do on TV. You know, is it normal to call your detective every week or every month or every year? Is it normal that you don't have a copy of the autopsy report? How long should you wait to get that? Who should authorize that for you? You know, just uh, there's a lot of questions. You know, when will I get my day in court? How do I write a victim impact statement? It's like once the crime happened to your family, you start paying attention a whole lot more and you notice all the crime then from that point on. Mm -hmm. So since 2017, since August 21st, when I found out that Spencer was killed, I have never turned a cheek to crime. I now it's like, it's like antennas, like I hear the word crime, shooting, whatever. And it's like, I pay attention. And then I'm like, I want to help that family. So do they reach out to you or how are you guys getting in contact with these families? Oh, I've pulled up on crime scenes. <laughs> I will take my business card to a crime scene if I need to. Um, sometimes it is just on Facebook. Sometimes the news refers people to us. You know, if we, if we come in contact with a family first, you know, we will say, hey, you know, you if the news wants to talk to you, you know, um, you might want to tell them about your loved one so they can get your version of it. And so, you know, because people are like, the, the news is pushy, you know, I don't want to talk so soon or whatever. But it's really good to get your story out there and, you know, tell tell the community what happened to your loved one, your version of who that person is and what happened and that you need tips and, you know. And then there's other agencies that we work with too and pastors. Sometimes uh, these families don't have pastoral care. They need, um, you know, funeral services or whatever, and we will refer them and link them to people that we know that are in the business. There's a number of ways that we hear, and, and sometimes it's a person of a person, you know, like a friend of a friend that you know. And um, so then they, you know, people have contacted me before and said, hey, I know you're just the person I talked to this mom because I just found out that she lost her daughter. And I'm like, okay, give me your number, I'll call her. And the same with like missing persons. If we had somebody go missing this week and we started sharing it on Facebook, we'll reach out and we'll say, hey, do you need us to help you, you know, post flyers? Do you need us to help with a search? So there's lots of different ways that we get in contact. This is not your full-time job, is it? It feels like it, but no. <laughs> um, I actually have a day job, but this is a 24 hours a day. I mean, if someone were to call me at 2 in the morning, I would be up talking to them. I have left home at 1 a.m. to go to a crime scene. My husband would be asleep and not even know, and my, my Java girls would say, you're going to get in trouble when you get home. <laughs> I'm like, he doesn't even know I'm gone. <laughs> hmm. um, but yeah, we... This is around the clock every day, 365 days a year. We, we do whatever is required of us. You didn't go to school for this. No. There's no way to teach this in a classroom, or is there? I mean, you know, people can go to, go to school to, you know, learn law or, you know, whatever, but I did not. I have an accounting degree. I actually, it's, it's the empathy that I don't think that can be taught. I think you you have it or you don't. You know, when you're when you're put in a situation, you you reach deep down inside and things come out, compassion, love, things like that that you want to share with people. So by doing this in the number of years you've been doing it, you guys keep like stats on like a homicide, unsolved homicide that you helped the family through and help 
link them with the detectives and it turned out to be solved? Or what is your success rate? How do you know if you're succeeding? Um, that's a great story because we're trying to get better at that. But we do look at the solve rate of the police department as well. I mean, just we do kind of like try to follow that so we can tell if Fort Wayne's getting safer or not. Um, but also, um, as far as like Java in particular success rate, I mean, things that I think we're successful at. We worked with a unit of the police department to come up with this anonymous reporting tool that people can put tips through. And they have given us feedback that they've gotten quite a few tips and been able to um, solve cases. And it's not just homicide. I mean, they can anybody can submit any tip here. It could be about, you know, child abuse, domestic violence. It could be drug use, theft, anything. They can submit anything they want to. To me, that's a success. As far as like how many people come to our events, we can keep track of how many families we're connected with through that. We do um, events every year where we just try to show appreciation to these families because they're vulnerable people who are having the courage to share their story with you. And um, they're letting you in on some of their most private moments. You see them ugly cry. You feel their pain when you talk to them. And so we do like appreciation events and things like that. And so when we can get people out to that, 75, 100 people, and just kind of give back to them, it makes it worth it. And to me, that's a success. When people out in the community, you know, they come across somebody that needs to talk to us and they pass on our information, give our business card, connect us with somebody. To me, that's a success. Sometimes we don't always capture it as like stats, but we definitely pay attention. Not knowing any stats, can you take a guess on how many contacts over the last year Java had with victims, be it of whatever type? Well, we have almost 5,000 people on our Facebook um, group that we, you know, every day sees our messages. As far as families go, I mean, it's whatever's active in the courts. You know, Stacy accompanies people to court, and so whatever appointments are going on, we try to follow that on my case. People, I, I mean, I don't know, maybe actively talking with anywhere from 25 to 50 families in a year. Um, it depends on how many homicides there are. It depends on how many, you know, overdoses, and if people are willing to talk about that. Um, it depends on how many missing people we have. I mean, on average, we carry about like 80 to 85 missing people a year in Fort Wayne. I mean, that's usually what's on paper as being reported missing. Um, Wait, I got to stop you. There's that many people missing in Fort Wayne. Yes. Some have been missing since 2000. Some went missing. I mean, like I said, this lady this week, thankfully, she was brought home safe to her family. Um, last summer, I spent my 4th of July looking for a teenage girl that was missing. So so when you say looking for a teenage girl, are you out? Yeah. I, I went all up and down Pontiac Street knocking doors. I went through neighborhoods. You know, whatever leads families give us, you know, if they say, hey, we think might be here. I, you know, messaged, messaged a grandmother one time and said, hey. You know, your granddaughter's missing. Um, I got your phone number from family, and um, they want to know if you've seen her. So, I mean, I'll do whatever. I mean, you know, I got to stay safe, too, but I'll do whatever I need to. I've printed flyers. Um, I know you did a podcast with Blake about Cody Rose, who's missing. Well, um, he went missing from an area that's very near Waynedale, and um, so I went all up and down Bluffton Road. Um, there's several little motels along the way and lots of people that walk and stuff like that, and I hung flyers. I noticed, like, two days later, a couple of my flyers were gone. I went back and hung another flyer. And I will continue to, you know, spread awareness where it's needed. And, um, you know, if I need to knock doors, pass flyers, post whatever, um, I will. I'll do it. I've stayed at the courthouse until after midnight waiting on verdicts. Whatever it takes, that's what we do. So you work closely with the prosecutor's office, 
police department, detectives. How's how's that relationship? Yeah, so I'd say like our there's certain people in our organization that have um, connections different places, and so um, Stacy's the one that m- mainly goes to the prosecutor's office for appointments. But we all of us, you know, have gone to court and sat in court, sat through trials, um, hearings, and then the police department. Teresa has a really strong connection with some folks on the police department, and and I do too. I mean, you know, um, we've had Bench McKinney come. He's you know a community guy, and he's come to some of our meetings and um, talk to some of our members and stuff like that. And we know we can text him and, you know, he'll help us out if we, if he's got, you know, if we have a question, he'll answer it. And then to set up the, uh, the tip line, you know, Teresa had a connection and we met with them and said, Hey, you know, what can we do to help? And, um, because we're not trying to, we don't want to do their jobs, mm-hmm. but a lot of times just having that partnership, that connection, um, and we can encourage people to submit the tips and things like that. For someone listening who maybe has that, uh, caring heart. Mm-hmm. What would you say to them about joining you guys? Um, I would say get on our Facebook page. If you don't have Facebook, um, you can just go to our website. We have a calendar out there that shows our events. Um, but just come out. You don't have to. You don't have to. You know, have a a uh, homicide in your family. You don't have to have an overdose in your family. You don't have to have a missing person in your family. These people need your love and your support. And as a community, when everyone cares, not just the people that are impacted. It, we can make the community better. We can make it safer. Um, and so just coming out and getting the information, I mean, you'd probably be really shocked to hear some of what goes on. If you're, if you're like I was in, you know, back prior to August of 2017, I mean, I didn't pay a lot of attention. You know, my favorite show on TV is Wheel of Fortune. I wasn't even watching, you know, the CSIs and all of that. Right. But so, yeah, I, you know, if you're, if you're the person that's not in the know and you want to be, you know, come out. If you're the person that has a caring heart, come out. We'd love to have you. Okay, so what would you say to a family who has suffered a loss, be it overdose or has has a missing person? How would they get in contact with you guys? Um, So they can, we do have a phone number that they can call. Go ahead and uh, (laughs) say what the number is. 260-267-6797. That's our phone number. We also have a website, www.javafw.org. Um, our mission is on there. Some of our areas of focus, um, you know, we hope to restore restore hope for people. We spread awareness. Um, we want your voice to be heard. Um, we can be a liaison between you and police, prosecutors, people you might be afraid to talk to or intimidated by. We do try to organize searches, so if you need a search organized, let us know. We're happy to help. Um, we want every missing person to be returned to their loved one. Because, you know, I mean, like with my nephew, you know, we know he was murdered. We know he's gone. We had a funeral for him. Missing persons, I, I, it makes me so sad because these people don't know. I don't think I could go to bed at night not knowing where my loved one is. Um, it's, a, it's a whole different type of emptiness, I guess. Um, we do hold rallies, um, peaceful rallies. And um, we also help with vigils. Um, some families, you know, they say, hey, I've never done a vigil before. So we do help with that. Um, and we do hold public meetings to try to inform the community. And we're going to have a big Christmas craft coming up on December 9th where we just do crafts with these families and let them, you know, make something that has their loved one's name on it. It's therapeutic, you know, and then it's fellowship. And you're surrounded by people that know what you've been through. So are you guys only in this area? Are you over in Ohio, Michigan, or... <clears throat> Um, so we're mostly just here in Fort Wayne. Um, we've, that's not saying that we haven't talked to people in other towns because we have. I mean, people all the way from Washington have reached out to us. But, you know, we, um, 
as far as like the the actual support, I mean, we don't go other places and have meetings, public meetings, and we, you know, we're just here locally and we aren't searching, you know, performing searches in other towns and things like that. But we're spread the spread the word far and wide because our community is not the only one that's riddled with crime. There's a listener out there saying, how do I help fund you? Because you're a nonprofit organization, right? Yes. So talk to that person who's out there thinking about, I've got some extra money. What do I do with it? Yes, we would love your money. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, because that's, we are. That, that's the easy answer. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> um, because we are, we are helping these families. Um, and let me just tell you some of the things, ways that we have helped families. At Christmas, we try to make sure that every child that's left behind has a Christmas gift. Um, at all, every public meeting that we do, you know, we provide snacks and drinks and things like that. Um, in the summertime, we gave away 50 backpacks to kids, and they were filled with school supplies. But there's been times where, you know, someone reached out and said, my loved one was killed in my house, and I just can't go back there. I need help. Or, Can I stay somewhere tonight? Can you help me? And we've helped with that. You know, just different things like that. We, you know, when Stacy goes to court with somebody, you know, she wants to be able to take a small care package. We've sent memorial gifts before. Um, the vigils, if they need um, helium to put in balloons, or they need candles, or something um our awareness ribbons d makes the ribbons but we have to pay for the supplies none of us are paid this is this organization is completely volunteer operated we we do not make any money um so any money that comes to us is going right back into the organization and the people um we do have a hope to one day have a memorial garden because there's a lot of people out there that you know this was obviously an unexpected tragedy for them and they might not have had the means to you know, buy a plot at a cemetery. They may have cremated their loved one, and they don't have a peaceful place to go and sit and think about that person. And the reason why a memorial garden is so significant is because if you think about growth and life and all of that, you know, it's, there's just a significance there. And and gardens are usually beautiful and well-kept and peaceful, you know. So we, um, and we want something that's just very um, tranquil and just nice. You know, people don't always want to go back to the crime scene to have their vigil. Mm-hmm. So, but um, we've got a number of ways on our website that you can donate. We've got um, PayPal, Cash App. We have Venmo. You can mail a check to us. We've got a um, post office box that you can mail a check if you want to. It's P.O. Box 10411, and that's in Fort Wayne, Indiana, 46852. And um, if you want to be a monthly, become a monthly donor, and we, we do have one regular um, donor that sends us a check almost every month. And uh, we've got a few others that just give to us around Christmas time to make our, you know, the families have a good Christmas and things like that. So what am I forgetting to ask you about Java? They might want to know what it stands for. So um, the, so Java, hashtag Java, that's kind of like our acronym, but uh, justice, accountability, and victim advocacy. And the biggest part of it is the advocacy. Um, that's where we spend the most time, and that's where, like I said, it's it's healing, it's soothing to help somebody else. We don't do it for accolades. Um, I don't care if people know that I'm behind Java or D or Teresa, Stacy, you know, whoever. It doesn't matter. We just want people to get the love and support that they need. We want them to get guidance any way that we can guide them. And if we can't help them, maybe we know somebody that can, and we can link them to that. I mean, my pastor will reach out to me sometimes if somebody comes in the door at the church. Hey, do you have a connection for this? You know, we've got somebody here that doesn't have food or something. And they just know that Java knows people (laughs) and we're connected to people. And so sometimes they'll just reach out and say, Amy, can you help? And we will. 
Um, so we're just a, you know, we're, like I said, nonprofit, volunteer run, and we just people with hearts that help other people. I do have one more question. Sure. <laughs> You've said a couple of times, you said that uh, you would like it to be a safer city. Mm-hmm. You like it safer. What does that mean for you? Paint that picture for me. Um, I think um, to me, that is more peaceful, less crime. If you see something, you need to say something because at the end of the day, when these crimes are unsolved like this, there's somebody out there that committed that crime that is still lurking among us. Um, so we need to we need to come together. If you don't want this to happen to your family member, then you need to become part of the solution. With these drugs that are running rampant in our community, you know, um, this is not like the 60s and 70s. Like my parents grew up. I knew every day that my mom smoked weed. You know, you can't go out there and buy this this weed on the street these days because it's probably laced or cross-contamination or something. People don't realize maybe how unsafe it really is. And so maybe educating the community a little bit more. I hope to have billboards and, you know, scream from the mountaintops about what's going on. It's not just in Fort Wayne. Like I said, it's it's all over. But we definitely need need to make some changes. And and it's bigger than me. It's bigger than you. But when we all band together and say this is what we want. Um, and another thing, I don't like to politicize crime, but seriously, at the end of the day, sometimes it does have to do with the leadership. And we've seen over time, and you can see it even like just locally here with like the police department. You know, they've had a number of changes in leadership over time, and each leader does something different and come up with creative ways. And that's wonderful because if you look at the solve rates, I mean, they've improved. And if you look at crime, I mean, last year we did not have 49 homicides, you know. So so sometimes changes and creativity, uh, it matters. Well said. <laughs> Again, I ended before I said, Amy, I really appreciate you doing this. I appreciate you taking the time to talk about Spencer. Yeah, and thank I, you. And I know that uh, that's hard for you, hard for your family. And again, we're going to talk to your sister yeah. uh, more about that. But thank you for talking about him. And I really appreciate you talking about Java, starting Java, mm-hmm. and continuing in Java. And I hope someone listening can say, hey, I think I want to be involved with that. Or yeah. I would like to help donate to them. Yeah. That's what we're hoping for on that part. Me and too. And again, somebody <clears throat> knows something about Spencer. There's mm-hmm. no doubt in our mind someone yeah. knows something uh, because it happened right? Like you said. Amy Davis, thank you very much. I appreciate your time that you took out of today to come talk with me and uh, share a little bit of time. Yeah, justice for Spencer. He, he um, He loved soccer, and he used to tell me he dreamed of being on a semi-professional soccer team and things like that, but he never got to do that because somebody felt the need to cut his life short. So, um, that saddens me because I didn't get to see that, but justice for Spencer for sure. Um, Unsolved case again, and we, you know, Spencer, our whole family just is waiting for the day to get justice. It will come. Yeah, thank you. Come. All right, folks, thank you for listening to Police Pod Talk, and we will catch you again next week. Thanks again for hanging out with us. Remember, you can always go to policepodtalk at gmail.com or check us out on Facebook at Cleveland Junior or Police Pod Talk. Thanks again. We'll see you next week. <laughs>